Welcome back to Counting to Five, a podcast about the United States Supreme Court. I'm Mike, your host. On Thursday, June 21st, I recorded the Counting to Five weekly live stream, which included, among other things, coverage of the court's uh, five decisions on Monday, June 18th, and four new decisions on the morning of the 21st. Because of the sheer volume of material I had to cover, the live stream ran in excess of two and a half hours, so I've decided, for purposes of the podcast, to split this up into two episodes. What follows is part one of this live stream, which covers the five June 18th decisions, as well as other orders, including new cases granted for next term. The four June 21st opinions will follow in part two. And now, part one of the June 21st weekly live stream. Welcome back to Counting to Five, a podcast about the United States Supreme Court. I'm Mike, your host. This is our weekly YouTube live stream being broadcast live Thursday, June 21st, 2018 at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. This live stream will also be posted as an episode of the Counting to Five audio podcast. In these weekly live streams, we try to keep up to date with the latest Supreme Court news. And if you're watching live, please feel free to ask questions in the YouTube live chat at any time, and I'll try to keep an eye on it and answer questions as they come up. There's a lot to cover today. The end of the term is rapidly approaching, and the court has finally picked up the pace in order to get decisions in all of its cases out the door before the justices leave town for the summer. So we've got opinions, we've got new cases granted for next term, and we've got some other news and developments at the court. I want to warn you up front, this is likely to be a longer-than-usual episode. I usually aim for about an hour on these live streams, but it's if you've uh, been watching previously we- previous weeks, you know it's not unusual for me to run a little long, maybe 10 or 15 minutes extra. Um, tonight, I'll try to keep things moving, but there's just so much to cover that I'm sure it's going to take a while to get through everything. But if you're watching live, please don't hesitate to ask questions in the live chat. I may move pretty quickly through some of the opinions, but I'm happy to take more time and go into more detail if there are any questions. Now, here's what I plan to cover in uh, in this uh, episode. First, new opinions. On this Monday, that's uh, June 18th, the court decided five argued cases, including the two highly anticipated partisan gerrymandering cases. Uh, as we'll see when we get to it later uh, tonight, the court decided a whole lot less in these two cases than many people had expected or hoped, and one of those cases was actually decided with a short, unsigned opinion. We'll talk about that more in a bit. And then Earlier today, that's uh, Thursday, June 21st, the court issued opinions in four more cases. This includes two pretty big cases, about one about administrative agencies and another about state uh, taxing authority. Um, we'll run through each of the week's new opinions, uh, but they're also newly granted cases. So on Monday, the court also added five new cases to next term's docket, and we'll talk briefly about each of those five cases. But before we get to any of that, Let's just spend a few minutes talking about some other news, uh, other news and developments at the court over the last week. Um, first, just in a bit of a lighter news, uh, a, a very brief update on the RBG documentary movie, which is uh, still out in theaters. This week, this uh, the RBG movie, the documentary about the life and career of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, broke the uh, $10 million mark in its uh, total box office uh, gross. And that makes it, it has uh, moved up to the 26th highest grossing documentary of all times. So just interesting to to watch. Uh, and it's just kind of a, a sign of... Um, public interest, uh, particularly in, ju- in Justice Ginsburg and how she's kind of become a, uh, a cultural icon in, in recent years. Um, but moving on, there was one um, opinion uh, on an order this week. It's a case called uh, Catchmar v. Florida. 
this this is uh, one of the many cases that the the court uh, denied um, a, a petition for writ of certiorari this week. So they denied the petition to hear the case. Uh, the court will not be hearing it. And Justice Sotomayor issued an opinion dissenting from this uh, denial, so arguing that the court should have taken this case. Now, the allegation in this case, it's a uh, death penalty case out of Florida, and the allegation is that the jury instructions that were given in this death penalty case impermissibly diminished the juror's sense of responsibility um, as to the ultimate determination of death in this case. Now, this is a recurring issue that's um, come out of Florida. It's, uh, this is actually the fourth time in the last two years that Justice Sotomayor has dissented from a denial of this exact same issue coming out of Florida. And um, previously, the Florida Supreme Court had not addressed this issue, it was an issue that had been flagged, and the Florida Supreme Court hadn't hadn't faced it squarely. Uh, Justice Sotomayor notes in her brief opinion that a recent Florida Supreme Court case uh, attempted to resolve this issue, but resulted in a fragmented decision without a clear majority. And Justice Sotomayor is, is uh, once again um, urging the court to step in and uh, and resolve this issue. But the court has not taken this case, so it just re- it remains to be seen if, uh, if this uh, issue ever gets uh, taken up, um, because it appears to be uh, uh, just a re- repeat uh, issue that keeps coming up. Um, one more uh, development before we move on to uh, to the new granted cases uh, is a case called Sessions v. City of City of Chicago, and this is part of the the uh, so-called uh, sanctuary cities litigation. So the the Trump administration um, a, a, under a policy issued by the Trump administration. Um, the, the administration is imposing certain requirements on state and local law enforcement who receive federal grants. And these requirements involve uh, certain uh, types of cooperation with federal immigration enforcement. Now, um, after uh, the announcement of this policy, there were uh, several le- legal challenges brought by various uh, municipalities uh, in different parts of the country. And this particular case is, uh, is about the city of Chicago. Now, in the district court, the, the trial court in this case, um, the district court judge found that Chicago was likely to prevail and um, issued an injunction uh, preventing the federal government from imposing um, uh, uh, penalties, basically, on, on Chicago due to uh, noncompliance with uh, with these requirements. Um, but the the important part, for purposes of uh, of, uh, of the Supreme Court right now, is that the district court. Uh, imposed this injunction not just not just as to uh, the city of Chicago, but imposed a, a nationwide injunction that uh, was uh, directed at uh, the federal government's treatment of all grant applicants. Um, so ba- basically, arguing that that on the basis of its determination that the federal that this new federal policy is unconstitutional, it's barring the federal government from applying that to anyone um, pending uh, further. Uh, uh, litigation in this case. So the federal government is um, has now sought a stay from the Supreme Court. Um, but interestingly, they're not, at least at this point in litigation, they're not challenging um, the issuance of the injunction as to the city of Chicago. They're just challenging this nationwide application to all state and local law enforcement. So th- this is an issue. These, these, these have been sometimes referred to as n- nationwide injunctions or universal injunctions. Um, when, when a court uh, tells the government it can't apply a particular uh, statute or policy um, uh, universally across the entire country as to all um, uh, potential targets of a particular um, uh, particular 
policy. Um, they, these these types of universal injunctions have become increasingly common in recent years. It, uh, they 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 were um, nearly unheard of um, until uh, not too long ago, um, but began to kind of um, uh, be. Uh, become a little uh, be seen in some high profile cases um, during the Obama administration some challenges that were brought to actions of the Obama administration but now under the Trump administration they've really exploded they're routinely requested in a lot of the uh, the litigation against uh, the administration's policies which which uh, itself is is uh, extremely widespread and and they've been granted uh, quite often in the lower courts now these are controversial um, there's there's both uh, an argument that this the, these type of um, universal injunctions are in some ways improper um, under the traditional limits on uh, courts authorities to uh, to impose injunctive relief and, and also there's a, a kind of a pragmatic argument that these types of nationwide injunctions they they end up uh, short cir- short circuiting the normal um, practice uh, the normal uh, flow of, of of independent consideration of legal issues by multiple judges in in, uh, in different jurisdictions and they they've uh, turned into a situation where if the federal government loses once in any court it essentially loses everywhere because once an injunction is issued it applies across the country to to everything so so they've become quite controversial now this is one of the issues that um that is on the 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 uh the list of issues that the court is considering in the travel ban litigation the the litigation that's at the Supreme Court right now about uh, the Trump administration's uh ban on entry into the country by nationals of certain uh, countries um and uh that travel ban litigation along with the the rest of the outstanding cases uh at the court is expected to be decided in the next uh week or so so the court may or may not um, weigh in on this uh, issue of the uh, universal injunctions, depending on how they decide that case. But um, in any case, this uh, Sessions v. City of Chicago, the Sanctuary Cities litigation, the stay application was made uh, to the court. Now, Justice Kagan is the circuit justice for the particular circuit this comes out of, the Seventh Circuit. And uh, the circuit justice on these type of emergency applications is kind of the uh, the first uh, line of, uh, of review on these type of things. And Justice Kagan uh, issued an order um, ordering a response to this uh, stay application by June 27th, uh, which is the upcoming Wednesday. So uh, so we should hear um, Chicago's uh, answer on, on why this... Uh, uh, universal injunction is appropriate or should be maintained in this case um, n- next week. Uh, of course, there's no telling how quickly the court will rule on the on the issue whether they will uh, whether they will um, decide to uh, um, uh, issue a stay or not, and, and how quickly they'll uh, they'll move on that. Um, but that's just an interesting thing to watch. That'll uh, likely uh, there'll be some action on in the very near future. So let's move on to the newly granted cases. I mentioned that the court had granted five new cases on Monday this week. That brings the total of case granted cases for next term up to 23 so far. So 23 cases granted for next term. And I've talked about this before, but basically just due to the time it takes to brief a case, um, in order for a case to be ready to be heard on, in the fall argument sessions, then that by that I refer to October, November, and December, um, a, a case basically needs to be granted by the time the court goes on recess for the summer, um, so we can we can get a sense of how full the court's calendar will be next year, or at least the beginning of the court's calendar, by how many cases they get on the docket before they go on their summer recess. Right now, they have 23 cases. To have a full calendar for October through December, they would need to grant 
34 cases. So they still have a little ways to go um, from there. Now, next week, the final uh, orders list in June, the last set of uh, of, uh, of orders from their, their regular weekly conferences is typically the largest. Uh, it's, it's one of the largest of the entire year. It's, typ- it's, uh, it's the largest of the spring um, grants. So we are likely to see a, a, a significant number of cases granted next week, but uh, whether they uh, um, whether they hit that uh, 34 cases or fall short uh, just remains to be seen. So let's move on and talk about each of the five cases the court granted. And, and again, these will be heard um, in the fall. There's no telling exactly when each of these uh, uh, cases will will land on the court's calendar. That won't come out for a while yet, um, but uh, likely sometime. In uh, November or December, um, uh, these cases will each be heard. So the first case is a case called Sturgeon v. Frost. Now, this is a uh, statutory case, case about statutory interpretation, and it deals uh, specifically with uh, a statute called the Alaska National, in- Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act, um, which is abbreviated as ANILCA for short, which is a 1980 law. And that, that statute, it expanded um, federal conservation land in Alaska, um, and that land is divided into uh, conservation system units, referred to as CSUs for short. Um, but the particular provision at, in, uh, at issue in this particular case is, is one that reads, only those lands within the boundaries of any conservation system unit, which are public lands, as such term is defined in this act, shall be deemed to be included as a portion of such unit. No lands which are conveyed to the state, to any native corporation, or to any private party, shall be subject to the regulations applicable solely to public lands within such units. So um, it's saying there that that lands that are within the boundaries of these uh, conservation system units, but which where the the lands are owned by, uh, not owned by the federal government, are owned by a state or a private party, um, those those lands are are not um, subject to the regulations. Um, so, uh, the, the issue here is, um, in 1996, the National Park Service issued a regulation that said that, um, that, uh, that regulations, um, that apply to, uh, here's a quote, waters subject to the jurisdiction of the United States located within the boundaries of the national park system, including navigable waters, Without regard to the ownership of submerged lands, tidelands, or lowlands. So, so it says that its regulations when it's dealing with waters of the United States, so waters, uh, rivers and things that, that flow through a national park, that its regulations apply to those rivers regardless of who actually owns the, the land under those, uh, those rivers. So, um, the question is how, how do these, these two things interact? This Alaska, um, National Interest Lands Conservation Act, which, uh, which says that, um, the regulations apply only to the public land, which doesn't include land that's belonged by other parties, and this other regulation applying um, uh, applying to um, to waters, so rivers and such, regardless of uh, of the uh, ownership. Now, the the facts in this case are uh, are are um, kind of odd. It, it involves a man named John Sturgeon, uh, who's a moose hunter. And uh, as part of his his hunting, he travels to hunting grounds along the Nation River which is within the uh, Yukon Charlie Park, and he travels on the river by hovercraft. Now, the Nation River is owned by the state of Alaska, and uh, hovercraft are legal under Alaska law. However, while he was traveling, he was stopped by park rangers. He was told that operating hovercraft in the park is a federal crime, and he later went on to, to uh, challenge 
this uh, this determination by the Park Service that, that that this was a federal crime in these Alaskan rivers. Now, the argument um, by by Sturgeon here is that the National Park Service regulation uh, it directly violates the uh, the Alaska statute, the Anilka statutory provision. Says that the government doesn't have title to the river, doesn't own that river, so it's not public land under the statute. Now, the U.S. argues on the other side that. The United States has reserved water rights in navigable rivers. Um, so the United States has this regulatory authority uh, over rivers, regardless of the the um, the ownership of the land under those rivers, and that that uh, that's enough to bring them within the coverage of the uh, the Anilka, the Alaska statute. Um, but they they have a, a uh, uh, another argument the government makes, which which also which interprets specific language that I that I quoted up above, where where it refers to um, uh, regulations applicable solely to public lands within such units, um, and they read that that uh, solely to public lands within such units to mean that this provision only only applies to regulations that are that are Alaska Alaska specific. And they say that that, that uh, the uh, National Park Service's authority to regulate waterways is a nationwide authority, and, and the hovercraft law is a nationwide law, and so that it applies um, regardless of this uh, Alaska law because it, it doesn't doesn't fit within the precise language of that Alaska law. So it's just a just a uh, you know the uh, issue of, of untangling these these uh, various uh, statutes and, and uh, regulations that apply to the Park Service, and then the court will have to figure out how that all fits together. So moving on to the next case, it's a case called Garza v. Idaho. Now, this case, uh, a man named Garza entered guilty pleas to two crimes, um, and he had a plea agreement. And the plea agreement had waived his rights to appeal. That's a very common provision of many uh, government plea agreements, that if, if you're, when you're pleading guilty, you have to waive various rights, including the right to appeal. So you say, I'm pleading guilty, and, and, I, and I, I've given up my right to appeal this plea. Um, now... After pleading guilty, he repeatedly asked his trial counsel to file an appeal for him. The trial counsel refused because of this plea waiver, basically saying, you waived your right to appeal. I'm not going to file this appeal. Now, he brought a legal claim of ineffective assistance of counsel. The specific question at issue in this case is whether he has to prove prejudice um, in order to to make this claim of ineffective assistance of counsel. Now, normally when you make a claim of ineffective assistance of counsel, you have to show not only that your attorney um, failed to uh, to meet the standards uh, that are that are expected of of, of counsel in, in uh, a reasonable standard um, of practice, but you have to also prove that you were prejudiced, meaning that you were actually harmed by the attorney's error. That that something uh, there's a, a reasonable likelihood that things would have uh, come out differently. You would have benefited in some way if the attorney had not made whatever errors or mistakes or, or, or uh, misconduct that the attorney actually made. So that's the the it's one of the one of the criteria that needs to be proved in order to have an ineffective assistance of counsel claim. Now. There's a, a a rule from a uh, Supreme Court case called Flores Ortega from from 2000 um, that that says that normally uh, a failure to file when there's a failure to file an appeal when an attorney just fails to file an appeal prejudice is presumed. There's just a presumption that you that you were prejudiced by by losing your your right to to appeal in a, in a particular case. However, in this case. Uh, it, there's a specific um, uh, different circumstance of this plea waiver, the, the plea agreement that waived the right to appeal. And there's a split in the circuits over whether that presumption applies when there's a plea waiver. The argument is if you already waived your right to appeal, 
Um, and then, and then, and then your, your, um, claiming your counsel was uh, ineffective for failing to appeal, uh, th- that presumption that you were prejudiced by the, by not appealing shouldn't apply because generally that appeal would probably in most cases will be dismissed as barred by your plea, the plea agreement. So, uh, this court's going to have to, um, decide whether that presumption applies even in these circumstances or whether a plea agreement is a, an exception to that otherwise, uh, the, the presumption, uh, that otherwise applies. Uh, moving on to the next new case, uh, there's a, a case called Lorenzo v. Securities and Exchange Commission. And this is a case about securities fraud claims, and specifically it's about the relationship between claims uh, f- uh, for fraudulent statements uh, versus claims about a fraudulent scheme, a scheme to defraud. Uh, which is, those are two different types of securities fraud claims that can be brought. So here's the basic facts in this case. There's a company called Waste to Energy goes by W2E for short. And it was a company that was claiming it had developed a technology to uh, produce energy by uh, the gasification of solid waste. Now, it had uh, it had uh, issued um, filings where it had valued its assets, including its technology, at more than $10 million. Uh, however, it, it turned out that the technology was, was, was not um, effective or not successful. And the company later amended its SEC filings and basically wrote down the value of its technology to zero and its assets, which it had previously claimed were more than $10 million, were uh, worth only a few hundred thousand dollars in total assets. Now, the uh, the uh, um, plaintiff, the uh, petitioner in this case, Lorenzo, was the director of investment banking at a, a small uh, brokerage company called Charles Vista, and he had emailed the these amended W2E filings. Uh, th- those are the ones where they disclosed that they had uh, um, written down their technology to to zero. Um, he he had sent an email um, attaching those filings, uh, sent it out to brokers. Um, in, in his company. And in the body of the email, he recited various claims that were promoting um, the value of this company, including the claims about them having more than $10 million in assets, and made no mention in the body of the email about this uh, write-down of the, of the value in this amended filing. Now, the email said that was uh, in the body of the email, it said that he was sending it at the request of his boss. Now, securities fraud claims were brought against him, against his boss, against uh, others, and uh, bringing claims for both for a, a scheme to defraud and uh, the ma- making of a uh, material uh, misleading statement, a fraudulent statement. Um, some factual determinations were made in the in the case. This was an administrative hearing, a hearing before a, uh, a administrative law judge in the SEC, um, and they determined that the emails, the text of the emails, was actually drafted by Lorenzo's boss, and uh, and they credit they believed that he actually didn't didn't read. These emails basically before he sent them out, but the uh, the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, nevertheless found him guilty of uh, both uh, false statements and uh, fraudulent scheme. Now, um, th- uh, this uh, this was appeal that went to the uh, the Court of Appeals for the uh, DC Circuit, and um, they they found uh, that he was not guilty of the fraudulent statement claim. And this was under a Supreme Court case called Janus Capital Group v. First Derivative Traders from 2011. And in that case, the court had held that that, um, when you're dealing with a fraudulent statement, the maker of a fraudulent statement is the person with ultimate authority over the statement, including its content and whether and how to communicate it. And the D.C. Circuit determined that that was Lorenzo's boss in this case, not him, so he couldn't be guilty as the maker of a fraudulent statement. Um, but the D.C. Circuit nevertheless found him guilty 
of a scheme to defraud um, on the basis of that same email. They found him guilty of a fraudulent scheme on the basis of sending out that uh, particular email with uh, with those mis, uh, 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 false statements in it. So the legal argument by, from Lorenzo is basically that this is just uh, the SEC taking a failed fraudulent statement claim, so a claim that just doesn't meet the legal standards the Supreme Court has set for fraudulent statements, and just repacking repackaging that exact same thing as a fraudulent scheme. And and Lorenzo argues you, you just can't do that. That guts the court's limitations on liability for fraudulent statements. The SEC, on the other hand, says that Lorenzo's actions in producing and sending the emails, even if he didn't write the statement, his actions in producing those and sending those emails fit easily within within uh, the, the the idea of participation in a fraudulent scheme. So uh, So that's the issue here. The court will have to decide um, whether or not, uh, a false statement can, can serve as a basis for, for a fraudulent scheme if there would be no liability for the fraud, for, for the false statement by that particular person in the first place. Uh, moving on, this is, uh, it gets us to our fourth of five cases that the, the court added to its, uh, docket on Monday, a case called Tim's v. Indiana. And this case asks whether the Eighth Amendment's excessive fines clause applies to the states. Now, the text of the Eighth Amendment, it says, excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. So this is specifically about that second part, that excessive fines, nor shall excessive fines be imposed. And here's the basic facts here. Uh, Tim's uh, was convicted in Indiana after selling a few hundred dollars worth of heroin to some undercover police officers in a few separate transactions. Now, after his, his uh, um, after his, uh, arrest his Land Rover, his $40,000 Land Rover, which he had used to drive to the drug deals in question, was seized by the government. A forfeiture action was brought, um, uh, basically saying that, that because it was used as, a, as an instrumentality of the crime, this uh, Land Rover, the, the vehicle, could be seized and, and taken by the government. Um, now, Tim challenged this, uh, saying it was an excessive fine in violation of the Eighth Amendment. The lower court in this case agreed. They said that the forfeiture was based on just a single uncompleted drug sale to an undercover officer. Um, that was that was what the government based uh, uses the basis for the forfeiture, and that the maximum crim- criminal fine was only ten thousand dollars, and this vehicle was worth significantly more than that. But when it went up to the Indiana Supreme Court, the Indiana Supreme Court reversed, saying that the Supreme Court has never found excessive fines to be incorporated against the states. So let me back up a little and explain what that means. What, what, what does incorporation mean? So the Bill of Rights which contains the various uh, rights very familiar to people, freedom of speech and religion, uh, the right against uh, unreasonable search and seizures, uh, cruel and unusual punishment, various uh, rights. It was originally understood to apply only to the federal government, not to the, not, uh, uh, to the states. So those are just protections against um, federal governmental power. But after the Civil War, the 14th Amendment was enacted, and this dramatically changed the structural relationship between the states and the federal government. Now, there's widespread agreement that the 14th Amendment was intended to extend certain constitutional rights so they applied against the the states and not just the federal government. This is referred to as incorporation. Um, so just, for example, you'd say the freedom of speech has been incorporated against the states, meaning it applies not just against the federal government, but against the states as well. But there's major disagreement about exactly how this incorporation was supposed to work and, and, and disagreement about exactly which rights were supposed to now apply to the states after the 14th Amendment. Was this the entire Bill of Rights? 
Was it only a certain subset of the rights in the Bill of Rights? What about constitutional rights found in the body of the Constitution outside the Bill of Rights? Or what about so-called unenumerated unenumerated rights? That's rights not explicitly spelled out in the Constitution. There's a lot of disagreement over how this is supposed to work. But for some complicated historical reasons, the Supreme Court didn't start ruling on incorporation until the early 20th century. And what it did, it happened in a piecemeal, case-by-case, one-right-at-a-time process. Um, and this is this is referred to as selective incorporation. So so piece by piece, the Bill of Rights, uh, the rights in the Bill of Rights uh, got incorporated uh, against the states. Now, most major constitutional rights were incorporated in the early to mid 20th century, but there are some outliers. The most recent Supreme Court incorporation case was a case called McDonald v. City of Chicago in 2010, and that's the case that found that the Second Amendment, the right to keep and bear arms, was incorporated against the states. But there's still a handful of rights in the Bill of Rights that have never been expressly incorporated, and one of these is the the excuse me the Eighth Amendment right against excessive fines. Now, the other Eighth Amendment rights, that's the right against excessive bail and the right uh, to be free from cruel and unusual punishments, and they're in the same uh, amendment. They're actually in the same sentence in the, fourth, the Eighth Amendment. Those were incorporated decades ago, um, and the court is actually just in passing in several cases has has just said that the excessive fines uh, clause applies against the states, but it's never actually directly decided a case on that issue. So this is considered one of the rights that has never been formally incorporated against the states. So here the court is being asked to decide whether the right against excessive fines is also incorporated. So it's just a, it's a, uh, interesting little case uh, on a, a, a type of case that uh, doesn't come up very often, and uh, and there's it's it, um, it it's interesting because it it uh, the, as I mentioned, there's a lot of um, disagreement, a lot of scholarly disagreement over how incorporation is really supposed to work, uh, how it was intended to work originally, and and questions about how the court has applied it in various cases. And this actually came up in that McDonald v. City of Chicago case that I mentioned, um, because. A majority of the court decided in that case that the Second Amendment was incorporated against the states, but there were actually two separate opinions disagreeing on how that actually worked constitutionally. Justice Thomas actually uh, wrote a separate opinion from the rest of the majority, um, arguing that a, a different clause of the 14th Amendment um, was responsible for incorporation and basically arguing for a, a different approach that the court should take to the question of incorporation. So it's just interesting, and it'll be interesting whether those issues arise again in this case. Um, so that brings me to the last of the five cases that the court added to its docket on Monday, and this is a case called Apple Inc. v. Pepper, and this is an antitrust case. Now, the allegation in this case is that Apple, uh, it's Apple, the, the computer company, um, is, is, is said to monopolize the uh, the iPhone aftermarket by having a closed ecosystem for iPhone apps. In other words, um, Apple completely controls developers' access to the App Store, and that allows it to uh, to act like a monopolist to to charge a uh, excessive thirty percent commission on all apps sold. That's the allegation against Apple. Now um, the legal issue here is that the claim was brought by consumers, not by the developers. So it's so it's not the application developers complaining about the thirty percent commission. It's the consumers, the people. The, it's a claim brought by purchasers of the apps, and Apple's claim is. 
the, the, they don't charge this 30% fee to consumers. They collect this out of the payments to developers. The 30% comes out of the developers' payments for the apps. And so this, this is the, the, the argument from Apple is this is uh, what's referred to as a pass-through claim. So basically a commission paid by developers is passed on in higher prices to the end consumers. And this is a claim being brought by the end consumers, those, the, 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 that the fee was passed through to. Now, the issue is there's a 1977 case called Illinois Brick Co. v. Illinois. And that was when the state of Illinois tried to sue a brick manufacturer for price fixing. Um, but the facts in that case were that Illinois purchased its bricks indirectly through masonry contractors, uh, not directly from the brick manufacturers. And the court held in that case the indirect purchasers can't uh, can't recover under the antitrust law. So the, the Illinois was an indirect purchaser. They weren't the ones who were directly harmed by the price fixing, so they couldn't sue. And uh, to do otherwise, the court said would would uh, would allow the potential of multiple recovery. Various people along a chain of purchasers could all have claims against the original um, uh, price fixer, and uh, and 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 could allow many people to be recovering for the same injury that had been passed on. Uh, down the line. Now, Apple argues that this case here, this uh, case about the App Store, is basically a direct application of Illinois Brick. They say, you know, it's it's uh, it's a pass through from the app developers to the consumers, and that's what's barred by Illinois Brick. The plaintiffs on the other side say, actually, the facts in this case are different. They say we're actually direct purchasers. We paid our money directly to Apple. We didn't pay to the developer. We paid directly to Apple, and then Apple is just taking a portion of that and paying it on to the to the developers. So that thirty percent commission that Apple um, uh, tax on to the the the, the prices um, that's that's something we're paying directly to Apple in the first instance. So uh, so this question uh, whether um, how the court will analyze uh, this case, whether they'll they'll fit it into that 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 model, and also there's been arguments made that the court should rethink the whole Illinois brick. Um, approach and that there are other approaches that would still prevent the double, um, uh, multiple recovery, but, uh, but would allow these type of pass through claims, um, to happen, uh, which, which, uh, sometimes when, when, when money, when, uh, costs are passed along, the, the real victims of the raised prices are people who are not the direct purchasers, but are indirect purchasers further down the line. So there's arguments made that, that the court should allow, um, these type of claims to be alive. So it'll be interesting to see how the court approaches that. Now I'm going to get onto the opinions, uh, this week, but before I do, I had one question in the, uh, in the live chat from Sam A. And, uh, he asks, uh, what are some other rights that are not incorporated? Now that's a great question. And I, I don't off the top of my head, I can't give you a list of them. One that I, I know, um, it's a very prominent one is the, um, the right to be indicted by a grand jury. In a, in a, in a criminal, um, proceeding, which is a, a right that you have in federal court, but that has never been, um, applied against the state and many states do not, uh, require, um, grand jury indictments. Um, so that's, that's one particular right that, that, uh, um, that has never been incorporated. Um, beyond that, I, I don't off the top of my head, uh, can't, can't give, give you a list, but there are, there are a few others out there, just, uh, particular, um, clauses of certain, uh, uh, Bill of Rights provisions that are just have never, um, never been incorporated. So thank you for that question. Uh, let me move on to the opinions. So moving, coming into this week, we had 19 outstanding cases with only two weeks left of the term. But between Monday and Thursday this morning, the court issued opinions in nine argued cases. So that means we've got 10 to go still. 
Um, the expectation is that these will all be decided by next week. And in fact, as I'll explain a little later when we get to the end of uh, tonight, uh, we're actually expecting more opinions tomorrow. That's Friday, June 22nd. Um, but, uh, but let's uh, let's dive in and start, get started with the decisions. We'll start with Monday's decisions. Again, there were uh, decisions in five cases. Now, the first of those cases, uh, a case called Lozman v. Riviera Beach, uh, ended up with an eight-to-one decision with the majority written by Justice Kennedy, and the one dissenter was Justice Thomas. Um, and Justice Thomas, although he has a reputation for um, for being a frequent uh, solo dissenter, this is actually his first solo dissent of, of the term. He's dissented in a number of cases, but this is the first time he's been by himself this term. Um, so brief uh, background about this case. It involves a man named Fane Lozman. This is actually Lozman's second trip to the Supreme Court uh, relating to his uh, protracted battles with the Riviera Beach City Council. Now, he... Uh, um, Lozman was uh, a very prominent opponent to a waterfront redevelopment plan by the uh, city of Riviera Beach, and uh, he was kind of uh, considered a, a nuisance by the city council. And during a closed-door meeting of the city council where uh, transcripts, transcripts of that meeting were later released, um, council members explicitly talked about intimidating Lozman and sending him a message. Uh, so it was clear that they they, they really uh, disliked him. Now, the the incident that, that uh, resulted in this Supreme Court case was um, that Lozman appeared at a city council meeting in the uh, um, public comment portion of the city council meeting. And he uh, began speaking. He was talking about public corrupt- corruption in uh, local government. And um, a commissioner uh, or a, count, um, a city council member um, basically ordered him uh, arrested, ordered him to stop speaking, and then ordered a police officer at the meeting to arrest him and take him away. Um, he was charged with disorderly conduct and uh, nonviolently resisting arrest, but those charges were later dropped. Now, the interesting thing is this entire incident is on video. It was captured on video. You can watch the whole thing. Um, it, it's uh, relatively uh, relatively short because he, he barely gets started talking before he's ordered to stop. And then quickly the police officers told to take him away. So he sued the city for uh, first amendment retaliation saying that they were retaliating against him for his exercise of his first amendment rights and specifically his, his, um, his local activism against uh, the city council's uh, uh, eminent domain efforts to, to do the waterfront redevelopment. The question in this case was, is it enough um, for Lozman to show that his arrest was motivated by retaliation. And the, the city's claim and the, the, the argument that won below was that he actually has to, he has to prove that there was no probable cause, there's no conceivable probable cause for his arrest. So during the litigation, the, the city had originally charged him with disorderly conduct and resisting arrest. Those charges are dropped and the city, uh, never was, never could could not plausibly claim that there was probable cause to arrest him for either of those offenses. But during the litigation, the city came up with a number of new theories of possible offenses that he could have been arrested under. They eventually settled on the idea that he was disrupting a public meeting um, because he had been asked to stop speaking and he didn't stop speaking and that, that that was grounds that would have justified his arrest. Now, there's a previous um, precedent that, that said that in, a, in, a, in the... Uh, uh, in the circumstance of a retaliatory prosecution um, that you had to show that there was, there was no uh, probable cause for that prob- that prosecution. And the argument here was the same thing should apply in the case of an arrest. So the majority opinion against the eight to one decision, the majority was by justice Kennedy and it frames the case saying, you know, does probable cause for arrest insulate um, a first amendment retaliation uh, claim 
from uh, insulate pe- uh, the city from liability from a First Amendment retaliation claim. And he characterized this as a, a narrow issue. The only issue is, assuming there's probable cause for arrest, does this bar this First Amendment claim? And uh, in Justice Kennedy's opinion, he says there's basically two key precedents of the of the of the Supreme Court. One is a case called Mount Healthy City Board of Education v. Doyle. That's a 1977 case, and the facts in that case are there, there was a, a school board uh, that didn't re- rehire an untenured teacher. Now the allegation in the case was that um, the that teachers protected political speech was what motivated the board's decision not to rehire him. The board, however, pointed to um, some incidents of unprofessional conduct and said that those incidents could independently justify their not rehiring this teacher. The court decided in that case that the, the, the board would be liable only if the action, in this case the not rehiring him, would not have been taken absent the protected activity. So had he not spoken up, uh, you know, made the protected political speech, had he not done that, would they still have not rehired him? And and if they would have acted differently, and it was only because he uh, engaged in that protected activity, then they could be found liable. Now, this is referred to as the Mount Healthy standard after this case. And that's been extended since to various uh, types of uh, what's referred to as mixed motive discrimination cases. So there's a case, for example, where someone, for example, where someone's fired and there's uh, allegation both that it was, a, for example, let's say a racially motivated firing. Someone was fired because of their race. Um, but there were also claims that there were permissible motives for the firing, that there were uh, um, you know, misconduct or other uh, uh, good reasons why the person should be fired. The Mount Healthy standard applies. The, 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 the courts will ask, um, was this uh, impermissible reason? Was that the motivating? Was that a factor that, that made a difference? That, that Had that not... Um, been there, the, the, the firing or whatever action happened wouldn't have occurred. So, so Lozman argues that that Mount Healthy standard is the one that should, should apply in this case. Now, the court also points to the second case. This is a case called Hartman v. Moore, a 2006 case. And this is the, um, retaliatory prosecution case that I mentioned, um, before. Um, this, this case involved a, a company and its CEO who were involved in lobbying the government. Um, and they were prosecuted for violating federal law, but but later acquitted. Now, the the CEO of that company he brought a suit against several postal inspectors who had allegedly instigated the prosecution. The court held in this case that if there was probable cause for the prosecutor to go ahead with the prosecution, then there could be no claim. Uh, he, he cannot bring a claim for retaliatory prosecution. However, if there was no probable cause. Um, then the Mount Healthy standard would apply, and he could go forward with his suit against the postal inspectors under that standard. Now, the just of that case was justified by the separation between the uh, the officials and the the prosecutor. So, so he was bringing his action against the postal inspectors, but the prosecutor makes the ultimate determination of whether to prosecute someone. Um, and uh, the court said there's a presumption of regularity by prosecutors. We assume that prosecutors are acting in good faith. And uh, e- even if the uh, postal inspectors were acting improperly, if the prosecutor nevertheless decides that there's a probable cause to go forward with the prosecution, that basically insulates it because that's the ultimate cause of the prosecution. So the question is, is the same thing, is that same, does the same principle apply here with respect to the city council members and the police officer? Now, Justice Kennedy emphasizes differences between Lozman here, Lozman's specific case, and more common types of arrests. And he, he, he notes that these allegations, they relate to an official policy of the city. Um, so, so he's, he's, uh, 
he's complaining about about something that he regards as being an official policy that basically the city council members had engaged in an official policy of retaliation against him. Um, and otherwise, there's there's no real recourse for this type of official misconduct when the, the city as a, as a whole has, has kind of taken these actions against him. And uh, Kennedy also um, points to the separation between the facts that allegedly motivated the re- retaliation. So that's his, his uh, history of activism against the city and the particular speech he was engaged in at the time of his arrest. Um, the court also points to objective evidence of the policy, uh, Lozman has uh, transcripts of that uh, of that um, city council meeting and also video of the actual arrest itself that provides this this hard evidence to be looked at. And and uh, he also points to this being high value speech. It was a lawsuit against the city and criticism of public officials, and that's highly protected speech. That's the kind of speech that the First Amendment is is, is designed to uh, encourage. So the quote. This is a, a quote from the from the uh, opinion. Kennedy says, "Quote on facts like these." He says that Mount Healthy is the standard. Now, the court ex- explicitly says it's not deciding the appropriate standard for arrests in any other context, just saying on facts like these, Mount Healthy is correct. And the court gives virtually no guidance on how similar a case has to be to Lozman's case here to fall within this Mount Healthy standard. So this is likely to result in a lot of further litigation to to kind of figure out how far this decision can go. It's, it's just, it's, um, the, the facts in this case are, are very specific and just Kenny kind of, um, uh, rests this decision on those very specific facts in this case. Kennedy also notes that there's a lot of issues that are still open when this uh, case, this case goes back down to the lower courts, including whether that retaliatory city policy actually existed, whether he's actually proved that that existed, whether the arrest was uh, kind of an official city action as a result of that policy, and and uh, whether he would have been arrested anyway um, uh, under under that Mount Healthy standard, um, it, you know, it's unclear how this uh, how this will even apply to the the most likely facts in in Lozman's actual um, actual case. You know, whether, whether given given the facts there and the way that the, he was cut off when he started speaking, whether that even fits into this. Uh, the, the way that the court has described it here. So it seems like a very narrow opinion and, and difficult to tell where it actually applies. Now, I mentioned that Justice Thomas dissented from this. He characterizes the extremely narrow scope of this court's decision. He says, here's a quote here. He says, quote, to fall within this unique class, a claim, a claim must involve objective evidence of an official municipal policy of retaliation formed well before the arrest in response to highly protected speech that has little relation to the offense of arrest. So he's just basically you know, uh, lining up all those various uh, points that Justice Kennedy um, emphasized as as kind of distinct, important things about Lozman's case and saying, well, if we're saying that this applies to that class of cases, that's a very, very specific thing that just about nothing is going to to, to fit into. And he basically criticizes the majority for leaving um, open the broad issue that the court granted the case to decide, this bigger issue of, of arrests in general. Um, the parties in the case didn't argue based on the uniqueness of Lozman's specific case. And so he says that the court, here's another quote, we should not have gone out of our way to fashion a complicated rule with no apparent applicability to this case or any other. So, um, he, but he goes on to argue his solution or his answer to how the court should have done this. He believes the probable cause should be an absolute bar. So the same is the case of a, a retaliatory prosecution. Um, he, he, he says that, uh, 
this this case, so this the, the claim here, this retaliatory First Amendment retaliation claim, is brought under a federal statute referred to as Section 1983. Now, that's a federal statute that allows um, suits against state actors for constitutional violations. And he, Thomas says that 1983, that's, that, that statute, is intended to borrow standards from common law torts. And Thomas says the most closely analog- analogous um, common law torts to a retaliatory arrest were um, the torts of false imprisonment, malicious prosecution, and malicious arrest. And he looks at each of those and says that all three of those required a plaintiff to prove the absence of probable cause in order to um, have a claim under any of those those traditional common law torts. And so he says the same thing should apply here. And he also argues just as a policy matter that the police need a safe harbor in order to be able to do their job without harassment by lawsuits. So he, he so he disagrees with the majority and says a flat bar on uh on uh, uh any actions where there is probable cause for the arrest is the is the right rule here. So let's move on to the next case. Uh the court issued a case called uh Chavez Mesa v United States. Now this was a five to three decision. Uh Justice Gorsuch was recused from the case, so only eight justices deciding it. And it was an unusual lineup. The majority um, consisted of Breyer, Roberts, Thomas, Alito, and, and, uh, Ginsburg. So you had, you had, uh, justices from the, both the, uh, conservative and liberal kind of wings of the court. Uh, it's an unusual alliance there. And in the dissent, you had Justice Kennedy, Justice Sotomayor, and Justice Kagan. So another mixed, mixed grouping there. So it's just an uh, unusual lineup. And you see these from time to time. And there's some other ones, uh, a little bit unusual lineups that we'll talk about a little later, um, uh, tonight. But, uh, this is one of those. So the quick background. Um, this, this is a case about uh, federal sentencing and um, specifically resentencing. And, and let me explain. In the federal courts, there is a, a set of sentencing guidelines. And these sentencing guidelines, they calculate a range of time behind bars uh, for a particular offense based on a variety of factors. Now, the, when, when someone's convicted of a federal crime, the sentence that's provided in the statutes is often incredibly broad. Uh, for example, someone might be sentenced to a crime that has a, uh, might be convicted of a crime that has a sentence of zero to 20 years in prison. So it's, it's an enormous range. So, so to, to deal with this, um, there, the, uh, there's a federal sentencing commission, um, that, that that is in charge of putting these sentencing guidelines together um, that, that by um, using various uh, factors related to the crime itself and the criminal history of the, the, uh, the convicted defendant, um, the, they, these go into charts and determine a range of years that the, uh, the defendant um, is, should be sentenced at. Now, sentencing courts are required to calculate these guideline sentences, but then these guideline sentences are not binding on the court. The court is free to depart from them. They can go upward or downward and, and, uh, and, and, and issue a different, um, sentence, but they're considered to be highly influential. It's basically a starting point that judges start from. Um, so here's the question. What happens when one of these sentencing ranges is later lowered? So the sentencing commission comes in and, and, and says that one of these sentencing ranges should be lowered, but it's after someone has already been sentenced under that range. Well, there's a uh, a statutory provision that uh, allows, in those circumstances, the court to conduct a resentencing. And, and there's been uh, we've uh, earlier this term there were some other cases that uh, were in this this uh, involve these same type of resentencings. So so here's what happened in this particular case: the defendant here, Chavez Meza, he pleaded guilty to possession of methamphetamines with intent to distribute, and the sentencing range, um, which was uh, based largely on the drug quantity. Um, it, it gave him a range of 135 to 168 months. 
If you do the math, that's like 11 to 14 years. The judge sentenced him to the bottom of that range, to the 135 months, right at the bottom of the range. Now, a later, later, the sentencing commission um, revised that range downward. So instead of 135 to 168 months, it was now 108 to 135 months. Now that's nine to 11 years. So it cut the range from 11 to 14 years down to nine to 11 years. So that's a significant reduction in, in the, uh, the sentence for this particular crime. So Chavez Mesa, uh, under the federal provision for resentencing, he requested a proportional adjustment of his sentence. He was sentenced at the bottom of the original range. He has to be sentenced to the bottom of the, the new range. So 108 months. Um, and, uh, this, this would, this would chop more than two years off his, uh, his original sentence. The judge instead reduced his sentence to 114 months. So it's within the new range, but not at the bottom of the range where he was at the bottom of the range before. But the judge gave no explanation for how he chose this particular sentence. He, he just, he used a standard printed form that has boilerplate language that says that appropriate factors have been considered by the judge. So the question here is, is that okay? Does the judge, is the judge required to give some explanation um, when he gives a, a, a sentence that isn't uh, straightforwardly obvious? Now, the majority opinion is by Justice Breyer. And again, it was that mixed coalition of, of justices. And he says, he, he points out um, that, that although, you know, the judge is required to state the justification for a chosen sentence, there's a precedent of, of the, the Supreme Court, a case called Rita v. United States. And in that case, um, the court said basically that the, the amount of explanation that's needed is pretty minimal. A sentencing judge need only, here's a quote, set forth enough to satisfy the appellate court that he has considered the party's arguments and has a reasoned basis for exercising his own legal decision-making authority. Um, so it's it's a pretty low standard, and also the judge was is is permitted to rest his or her reasoning on the sentencing commission's reasoning about appropriate sentences. So if the judge sentences someone within the guidelines range and then says that they 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 believe that the guidelines range is reasonable, that's basically enough. Now, um, Justice Breyer also points out that there's no requirement of proportionality within the guidelines ranges when someone is resentenced. There's nothing that requires that to happen. And he also says that that can be hard to do in the middle of a range of sentences. If someone's not at the very top or very bottom of a sentence, the the old range and new range may not be uh, the same number of months. It may be hard to decide where exactly the uh, the new range ought to fall. and but he he leans heavily on the guidelines ranges as representing a view of a proper sentence and he says that that um the fact that uh, that the judge um considered the 135 months under the original sentence it was within this guidelines range but if the judge considered that to be an appropriate sentence um, and that's above the new range that's being applied, then it's not surprising that he might consider uh, a sentence that's above the bottom of the new range to still be appropriate. So th- so uh, uh, Justice Breyer says that basically no more uh, explanation is needed in, the, in that type of a case. He leaves open the possibility that there may be some sort of disproportionate sentences that need more justification, but doesn't explain what that would look like. Now, Justice Kennedy dissents and argues that the form uh, that was involved in this case, it just gives no explanation for why a particular sentence was chosen. And that, by not doing that, that doesn't allow for any sort of meaningful appellate review. There's no way that a court can look at that sentence and decide whether it was reasonable when when uh, when they have no idea why the judge picked a particular point um, that was... Uh, that was uh, uh, that was ultimately chosen. Now he he argues that the solution here um, is actually very simple and 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 minimal. He argues that this whole problem could be solved with a slight adjustment of the standardized form 
if, for example, a number of uh, additional checkboxes were added on the form for the most common reasons that a judge might choose a particular sentence and the judge could just check off whichever checkbox is applied in a typical case, then that might be enough and that would, uh, that would, uh, um, resolve the, the, the issue. Um, and he argues that the issue is not proportionality but adequate explanation. He says when there's a proportional reduction, so when someone goes from the bottom of the original range and the resentence to the bottom of the new range, it's easy to infer that the original reasons the judge gave for the first sentence apply to the resentencing. But when there's a non-proportional reduction, it suggests the judge had something else in mind, um, and only a brief explanation is probably necessary, but some explanation should be given for that. Um, he also notes that, that in this particular case, Justice Breyer for the majority in this case, and the court of appeals below, they both found the uh, the district court's lack of uh, you know uh, form uh, with no explanation. They found that appropriate, but each of them speculated on a different reason that the judge didn't choose the bottom of the range. And Kennedy says that demonstrates that this is just an inadequate basis for appellate review when different judges reviewing it are, are speculating different reasons that just the the um, sentencing judge did did what he did. And he also argues that this is just a poor use of judicial resources. The district judge could resolve this whole uh, whole issue with a, a couple sentences on, on a piece of paper uh, when he when he issues the revised sentence, but instead it'll result in just voluminous briefs and opinions on appeals speculating about the various reasons a judge might or might not have done something. And so Kennedy um, urges district judges, even though he's uh, Kennedy's in the dissent here and, and Breyer has won the day in this case, he urges the district judges to say more than they're required to say, to give some sort of explanation just to allow appropriate review in, uh, in future cases anyway. Uh, moving on, uh, the next case is a case called Rosales Morales v. United States. Now, this is a another case about um, uh, uh, sentencing, um, and this 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 case is a seven to two case with Justice Sotomayor uh, writing the majority opinion, and the dissent, uh, the two justices in dissent are Justice Thomas, joined by Justice Alito. And um, this is a particular case about the the um, sentencing guidelines and um, the calculations um, under the sentencing guidelines. So I mentioned before that the um, the sentencing guidelines have have uh, a calculation based on two components. There's factors related to the particular offense, and there's also a criminal history component. Now the defendant in this case, a man named Florencio Rosales Morales. Um, uh, he was a Mexican national who pleaded guilty to illegally re-entering the United States after being previously removed. Now, he had a number of previous arrests and convictions, and this involved some uh, uh, aggravated assault in which he stabbed a man multiple times. Uh, there were multiple convictions and arrests for uh, um, domestic abuse, uh, beating and choking his wife, uh, and things like that. So he had a, a significant cr- criminal history. Now, the guidelines range for his particular conviction was calculated to be uh, uh, 77 to 96 months. So um, that's uh, six and a half to eight years about. Um, he was sentenced to 78 months. So that's near the bottom of the range, six and a half years near the bottom of the range. Now, it turned out that when this, uh, when his criminal history was uh, calculated for purposes of the sentencing guidelines, it was accidentally miscalculated by the probation officer who, who's who's in charge of doing that. And uh, one of his assault convictions was double counted, and it ended up giving him a uh, higher 
um, criminal history and resulting in a higher sentencing range than he should have gotten if it was calculated correctly. So in, he was supposed to, he was, the, the, the guideline he was sentenced under was 77 to 96 months. The correct guideline should have been 70 to 87 months. So that's like six to seven years rather than six and a half to eight years. Now, interestingly, the sentence he actually got, that 78 months, is still well within the new range, and it's actually still even in the bottom half of the new new range. So it's not it's not that big of a change. But he was near the very bottom of the original range, and now he's more in the middle of the new range. So he he wants uh, a resentencing. Now the issue here is um, that his counsel didn't notice this. No one noticed this. The judge didn't notice this. Um, he no one made any objection. Uh, or pointed out this error, he was sentenced under this this uh, um, mistake uh, there. And the issue is, um, the error wasn't preserved. So now, normally, if 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 uh, if you want to object to something that happens in a district court, um, the attorney needs to make an objection on the record, needs to to say what's wrong, say what they're complaining about. And if that's not done, uh, then the error is not preserved. That you you can lose the right to later raise that issue. And part of the reason is 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 to to um, prevent. Uh, there's various reasons. It, g- it gives the the judge who's uh, who's on the front line, the one who's been dealing with the case, the the opportunity to immediately correct an error if there is an actual error or if they rethink um, whether they're doing something correctly. Um, but it also is supposed to prevent kind of sandbagging where where various uh, small mistakes or immaterial things are 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 just repeatedly brought up later in attempts to have multiple bites at the apple to get more chances to overturn a sentence. So it's encouraged uh, people to to bring up any concerns they have immediately to give the judge an immediate opportunity to resolve them and make a record. Now, that is not a universal requirement, and there's a specific rule in the criminal, the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure, there's a rule called 52B, that says, here's the quote, a plain error that affects substantial rights may be considered even though it was not brought to the court's attention. All right. So, um, so the question here is, is this the type of error, the type of plain error that falls within that rule and is allowed to be um, considered even though it was not brought to the court's attention? So the majority in this case is by Justice Sotomayor, again, it's a seven-justice majority. And she notes first that these sentencing guidelines, these sentences, even though they're advisory, they're a very important benchmark in sentencing. So these, these are uh, significant. And she goes on to discuss There's a, the, the key case here is a 1993 case called United States v. Olano. And this is a case where the Supreme Court established the standard for correcting a plain error under Rule 52B. And the court essentially established basically a four-part test um, of what you had to establish to say that you to show that you were entitled to correct an error under this rule. First, that the error had not been intentionally relinquished or abandoned, so it wasn't a deliberate waiver of some some uh, some objection. Um, uh, second, the error must be plain, that is to say, clear or obvious. Third, the error must have affected the defendant's substantial rights. So, in other words, there's a reasonable probability of a different outcome based on uh, uh, absent absent that error. And then finally, this this, this and this is the the crucial factor here. It says the court of appeals should exercise its discretion to correct the forfeited error if the error seriously affects the fairness, integrity, or public reputation of judicial proceedings. So that's the question. Does this meet that standard? Does this seriously affect the fairness, integrity, or public reputation of judicial proceedings? Now, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the the court that heard this case below, they have a standard that's been adopted in that circuit that only errors that would shock the conscience meet this test. 
uh, only errors that, that, that are so significant that they shock the conscience to allow that kind of error to persist. That's the type of thing that meets this, this standard. Now, Justice Sotomayor rejects that, says basically the shock the conscience test is not reflected in the language of Rule 52B or in the, the Supreme Court's earlier plain error cases. Some of those had, had allowed that inadvertent or unintentional errors are enough. And... Um, and so the shock the constants uh, test just just isn't the right test. And Justice Sotomayor basically says a error in calculation of a guidelines range will typically satisfy these Olano criteria. And there's, she gives multiple reasons for this. Resentencing, she says, is a relatively minor fix compared to a new trial, so you don't need quite as heightened a standard just to send something down for a judge to resentence. Um, and she gives a quote here. This is actually a quote from a lower court opinion written by Justice Gorsuch in it when he was uh, still on the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. And the quote here is, it says, what reasonable citizen wouldn't bear a rightly diminished view of the judicial process and its integrity if courts refused to correct obvious errors of their own device that threaten to require individuals to linger longer in federal prison than the law, than the law demands? So that's a, the quote there. She says that to say, yes, this, this bears on, uh, you know, the fairness, integrity, or public reputation of judicial proceedings. Um, uh, but she says that this is a discretionary decision and, and, and it's open to consideration on a case by case basis. In some cases, an, the error at issue just may not be significant enough to affect the fairness, integrity, or public reputation. Um, but in most cases, it will. So that's the, that's Justice Sotomayor's major, um, majority opinion. Now, Justice Thomas, uh, in dissent, this is a dissent for, for Thomas and Alito, um, disagrees and, and, uh, he agrees with the majority that the Fifth Circuit's shock the conscience standard is too high. Uh, but he says that the plain error standard is intended to incentivize the parties to raise errors early, um, and and this undermines that. And he and he argues that this this particular factor, the the fourth Olana factor, whether this seriously affects the fairness, integrity, or public reputation of judicial proceedings, is supposed to be a case specific and fact intensive inquiry. Um, so he he doesn't like the 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 majority's. Um, uh, statements that this this will uh, up, this will be met in most resentencing cases, and he he's uh, bothered that the majority decides that this uh, factor applies in this case without digging into the details of the defendant's sentencing in this case. Um, and he says this effectively creates a, a rebuttable presumption that these errors can be fixed. Um, and and he he argues here that there actually there is still a risk of sandbagging in these type of cases that that a defendant who's aware of a minor error in their sentencing calculations can nevertheless hope for a good sentence to make all the arguments to to get a uh, a uh, a good sentence from the judge but if uh, if if they're not pleased with what they end up with then appeal on the basis of this error and get a second bite of the apple uh, justice Sotomayor responds to that argument in the majority opinion saying there's hard to imagine a realistic benefit of this kind of uh, sandbagging that someone would take that kind of chance uh, by allowing the judge to sentence them under the wrong um, guidelines range on the chance that they get a second bite. Um, but that, that's the argument that Thomas had made there. He, he also says again, he, he points that the guidelines themselves, these sentencing guidelines are not the law. They don't dictate sentencing. They're only, um, they're only advisory. And he says the real, um, legal criteria is only whether the sentence that's actually imposed is reasonable and within the statutory, statutory range. He says, um, he, 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 and here he, he's pointing the, 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 to the fact that the the the, the sentence that was uh, that was imposed is still within the statutory range on the the uh, the correct uh, uh, I mean the correct guidelines range. Um, so it's a it's a presumptively reasonable um, sentence. And so he says uh, basically 
the uh, the defendant here had a reasonable sentence. So how how can you say just because uh, there's a purely procedural error, this miscalculation of the guidelines, how can you say that his substantive rights have really been impaired when he still ha- has a sentence that's still um, reasonable under the new range? Now, um, Sotomayor also kind of responds to this, saying that, that that this kind of gets things out of order, because before a judge can ever get to the point of determining reasonableness, they're supposed to calculate the initial guidelines range, uh, and that's usually used as a starting point, and here that wasn't done. So so to just start out with the reasonableness question is kind of putting the cart before the horse. Um and uh, Thomas also argues basically that, that this this would be reversing something on procedural grounds that don't actually affect the outcome the the uh, um, the outcome of, of it because he already had a reasonable uh, sentence and, and when that happens when there's reversals on these purely procedural grounds that itself undermines public confidence in the judiciary and he says that just the defendant here just didn't meet the burden of uh, of, of showing um, that uh, that his substantial rights were really uh, negatively affected here. So um, that brings us to the next cases. Now, now uh, I'm going to move on to the, the partisan gerrymandering cases. Now, the court had two cases this term um, on the issue of partisan gerrymandering. Um, and as I'll get to in a minute, the court decided a lot less in these cases than many people had um, uh, expected the court to or, or, or perhaps hoped it would. Um, though in one of the two cases, the court did still... Um, uh, Kind of establish some some significant principles that will likely be important going forward in this area. But first, before I start, I want to just get a little bit of a little bit of background about partisan gerrymandering, and we'll talk about the two cases uh, involved here. So, gerrymandering is the 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 uh, the redrawing of uh, of political boundaries of the lines for electoral districts um, in order to to gain some sort of um, some sort of advantage for a particular uh, candidate or party or, or group, um, and. Um, the Supreme Court has long been in the business of policing against racial gerrymanders. So uh, the drawing of, of, of uh, political lines to um, disadvantage or disempower certain uh, racial minorities. Um, but the court has had a largely hands-off approach when we're dealing with partisan gerrymandering. And part of the reason of this is 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 in racial gerrymandering, the court has uh, has been willing to to draw very bright lines to basically say that the use of uh, race in drawing districts is in in most circumstances is just flatly impermissible. So so we can say when someone is taking these racial considerations into into uh, effect and there's an actual impact on people's uh, the the weight of their votes, then uh, then then that's something the courts can remedy. But Political considerations are ubiquitous in redistricting. These, we're talking about a political process that's usually done by state legislatures, um, who are, you know, made up of elected officials who are in, involved in partisan politics and elected on partisan lines. And they're going to be acutely aware of the partisan, uh, um, ramifications of various, uh, districting decisions. And there's just no way to completely disentangle those two things. So it's not the kind of thing that the court can easily police. Now, that doesn't mean it hasn't, uh, been frequently, been raised, uh, uh, many times in court. And the court has, has, has kind of, um, uh, has faced this in the past, but hasn't, hasn't, um, hasn't squarely decided how these partisan gerrymandering cases uh, should be decided. Now, the, the last case, the important case where the, the court dealt with this was a 2004 case called v, uh, v. Jubilee. And this case 
was a partisan gerrymandering case that resulted in a fractured decision. There was a four-justice plurality that said that this type of partisan gerrymandering claim is just not justiciable. It's just not the type of thing that courts are in the business of policing. However, the fifth member of the majority um, in that case was Justice Kennedy, and he concurred saying in this particular case, in that particular case, there was no workable standard that the court could apply. But he held out the possibility that in a future case, the court might uh, might be able to arrive at a workable standard, something that was uh, that was uh, more definitive, more uh, applicable um, to allow these these uh, partisan gerrymandering cases to be to be uh, um, to go forward. Now, the other four justices in dissent um, thought that there was a viable claim of political gerrymandering in that particular case, but they were uh, the uh, uh, lo- losing uh, side in that in that particular case. Now. This term, the court granted not one but two separate cases dealing with partisan gerrymandering. One case was called Gilvey Whitford out of Wisconsin, and the other case was called Benesek v. Limon out of Maryland. Now, the the core issue here, they were both about partisan gerrymandering, and they were both about the dominant political party um, drawing maps to give itself a sizable advantage uh, in, in elections that, that would be uh, – that was intended to be a persistent – advantage that would keep them in power disproportionate to um, their actual um, uh, uh, voting uh, support in the state. But uh, there were other um, significant differences between the two the two cases. First, some factual differences. Uh, the one was uh, in the um, Wisconsin case, Gilvey Whitford, it, that's a, that was a Republican-controlled state, a Republican legislature, a Republican governor that had put in a, a map that was intended to uh, to um, ensure Republican dominance in, in future elections. In Maryland, it was the reverse. It was, uh, it was the Democrats who were in charge of the state and had a a, a map that had uh, given uh, extreme uh, favor to the Democrats. Now, there are also some differences in the actual districts that were drawn. Wisconsin, uh, the Republicans in Wisconsin had drawn a, a had used very sophisticated tools and had created a map that um, had compact districts that generally respected existing political boundaries like county and, and uh, city lines, and and wasn't on its face didn't appear to be a crazy gerrymander. You may be familiar with um, and, and the 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 original. Uh, districts way back uh, just after the uh, founding of the United States that gave uh, that uh, rise to the, uh, the the term gerrymandering in the first place. Uh, the the kind of the um, the classic gerrymanders are these districts that are these crazy shapes with all kinds of little tendrils going out in all directions, where the lines have clearly been drawn to just specifically loop in certain neighborhoods or even specific houses to try and create a district that uh, that uh, goes in a, in a particular political direction. Um, Wisconsin was not like that. It was on its face. It did not seem to be that type of a boundary uh, of a. Uh, a map, and, and that's because of the sophisticated techniques that were able to be used, uh, computer techniques, to draw those uh, maps. Maryland, on the other hand, uh, contains some districts that have much more obvious manipulation, where where the, there's uh, lines that that are that are uh, kind of uh, uh, snaking in various directions, and 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 look like there's obvious intent to manipulate the borders of the district. So those are just some factual differences, but there are also major differences in the legal arguments that were made in by the. Um, plaintiffs in each of those two cases. Wisconsin uh, brought equal protection arguments very similar to the claims that are usually brought in racial gerrymandering cases. They were basically arguing for vote dilution. And vote dilution is the idea that certain voters, their votes basically um, 
count less because of the way the districts have been created. And there's two ways that's done. One is called packing. And this is the idea that, that voters of a particular, um, you know, in racial claims, it's, in racial gerrymandering cases, it's voters of a particular race. In these cases, it's voters of a particular uh, political affiliation are uh, large numbers of them are packed into a, uh, into certain districts. And that means that, that, that the district, uh, basically if you pack 70, 80 or more percent uh, of a, a district is, is belongs to one party, say Democrats in this case, then, uh, many of those, those votes are basically, uh, unnecessary. They're wasted. They're, they're way more than is necessary to, to, to be competitive in that district. So those votes are basically meaningless in that particular district. On the other hand, there's what's known as cracking. And this is where you take a significant population of, uh, again, in, in this example, Democrats and instead split them across multiple districts so that they have a, uh, a much smaller impact in those districts. Uh, and, and that's another way of reducing the uh, effect of, of those, of those voters. So, so taking districts where, where, uh, Democrats may be competitive and either making them, uh, kind of a, a dominant majority in a small number of district and a kind of a inconsequential minority in a much larger number of districts. And you can end up, uh, when you do that over the, the state as a whole, you can end up reducing the number of, uh, districts where Democrats have any, um, possibility of, of having control and giving a disproportionate advantage to the Republicans in that particular example. And that's the Wisconsin, um, example. Um, so, so that's, that's the basic argument that's being made in that case. And the particular legal standards that they were they were advocating is is uh some some new tests that have been deve- developed by political scientists that that are generally grouped as, and and referred to as partisan symmetry tests and basically they're they're tests that have been designed where um um where mathematical formulas you can use to determine whether the way districts have been drawn um particularly favors one party over the other so that if a par- one party earns a particular percentage of the vote, are they likely to benefit significantly more than the other party would if they had obtained the same percentage of that vote to see, see if there's kind of symmetrical effects between the two parties. And one particular test that's kind of related to this partisan symmetry idea is, is something called the efficiency gap. And it's a measure of, of how many votes are wasted for a particular party with wasted votes referring to any vote for in a, in a district that a party wins, any vote greater than the 50% plus one that's needed to win that district. And in a, the district where a party loses basically all the votes in that district, those are termed, termed wasted votes. And by looking at whether one party or the other has a significantly greater number of wasted votes, um, that you can determine whether the map is biased um, significantly toward one party or the other. So those are the basic arguments that were made in the Wisconsin case was, was that the, these, these, uh, symmetry type tests should be applied to show that this is a, uh, a extremely tilted case, um, toward, uh, um, toward the Republicans. And that as a result, uh, many Democrats votes were diluted. Now the Maryland case, uh, went forward under, under a different argument. There, a first amendment case was made. The, the argument was that this was actually drawing the district lines in this way was actually a form of first amendment retaliation. Voters were being retaliated against on the basis of their political affiliation. And as a result, um, were being disadvantaged by, by, uh, by being harmed in their, in their, um, their ability to, uh, um, effectively, um, associate, uh, as a political party in that state. Um, and, and the particular standard that was advocated, uh, there were, uh, Arguments that, that, that depended much more on the intent of the lawmakers, so specific intent on the of the legislature legislators to um, to 
to disadvantage people on the basis of their partisan, their party affiliation. So the, that's kind of just a big background of the two cases. Now let's talk about what actually happened. So Gilvey Whitford, um, and, uh, somewhat of a surprise, uh, the, the, the case came down with a unanimous majority decision. It was a unanimous decision. Um, and it was decided by Justice Roberts. Now, um, Justices Thomas and Gorsuch didn't join one particular part of the, the opinion, which I'll, I'll come back to, but it was a, a unanimous opinion, um, along with a concurrence by Justice Kagan, joined by the other three liberal justices, that's Ginsburg, Breyer, and Sotomayor. Um, and then there's a concurrence in part by Justices Thomas and Gorsuch, basically explaining why they didn't join all of them, the majority opinion. But it's a majority decision, um, basically deciding this case on the grounds of standing, saying that the plaintiffs in this case did not have standing, meaning weren't um, sufficiently injured to bring the claims that they were raising in this particular case. Now, the issue here is that this Wisconsin case, as I mentioned before, was brought as a kind of vote dilution case. There was allegations of packing and cracking. Um, those are the terms adopted from the uh, racial gerrymandering cases. Um, and the, the, uh, the court basically said that, that, um, that there were the, all of the plaintiffs in the case had alleged, um, had alleged statewide, um, injuries. They, they'd alleged that the, that across the, the entire state, uh, members of their political party had been, uh, had been, been, uh, disadvantaged. Um, but, um, and basically, uh, for, for the, for the majority, um, Justice Roberts said that there's, there's basically a mismatch between, um, the, the particular, the way they were arguing this case, that, that, that the cracking and packing that was the specific injury that was occurring, um, and the way they were trying to prove the case. They said, of the various plaintiffs in the case, only four of the plaintiffs had alleged in the complaint that they actually lived in a district that was cracked or packed, a district where Democrats had specifically been disadvantaged, but they had, even those four plaintiffs had not made um, any effort to prove um, in the course of litigation that their specific districts um, were affected in that way. Instead, they had relied on these statewide tests about uh, symmetry um, to decide the case. Now, um, Roberts proceeded by by reviewing the past political gerrymandering decisions, and he he notes that that uh, uh, political consideration alone is not enough uh, to invalidate a district. That's something the court has, has said in the past. But but there's significant disagreement in the past cases about what the test should be, or whether this is even something that uh, that a court can can decide. Um, so he goes on and 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 he says. In deciding the standard standing issue, he says he rejects the idea that the failure of political will by the legislative branch requires the courts to step in. The arguments that are being made are that that uh, that the the um, because of the the advantage uh, that um, that one party gets by a party gets by engaging this kind of uh, um, gerrymandering. There's no there's not any legislative solution, um, and he says that that's that's not a reason for the courts to change their normal rules. And uh, the courts require, in order to bring a legal claim in court, a particular plaintiff has to have a concrete and particularized injury. So, so that means that there there has to be something that particularly harms them, not just a general grievance uh, about uh, what the government is is doing wrong um, from that plaintiff's perspective. And the court has also said in past cases the right to vote is an individual right; it's personal in nature. So a plaintiff must say that their show that their vote particularly is affected. Um, an individual voter votes for an individual representative. They're not voting statewide for an entire legislature. Um, 
so so if a plaintiff has failed to make this kind of um make this kind of proof that their particular vote was affected by being packed or cracked in a particular di- district then they haven't shown that they have standing in in uh to to bring these claims now the court explicitly leaves aside other possible theories of harm um it's it says it's based solely on this harm to the voting interest this vote dilution theory and 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 uh as as i mentioned before as in that the maryland case there's another um type of theory this uh the first amendment uh retaliation type of theory um, that that uh, the court isn't addressing here um, because that wasn't the way that this case was was uh, was litigated in Wisconsin. Um, but the the uh, result in this case is that Roberts, for the majority, orders this case remanded, sent back down to the district court to allow those four plaintiffs, the plaintiffs who had at least alleged that they were in packed or cracked districts, allow them an opportunity to prove under that theory that they there actually was packing or cracking of the individual districts. So so it allows that they could potentially go forward. But again, um, doesn't rule on the issue of, of what the actual standard would be for a political gerrymandering claim or whether the court will is can even, uh, that's something the court can even um, uh, decide. Uh, just allows them to, to take the, bring the case back down and go forward. So that brings me to Justice Kagan's concurrence. Now, Justice Kagan joined the majority opinion in full about standing and about this remand and says uh, and says that that was the correct decision in this case because they really just the way this case was litigated, they hadn't argued um, that they hadn't argued in a way to show that they had standing. Um, but then she goes on to argue that these plaintiffs could nevertheless proceed on a statewide basis. And argues under two different ways. First, she, she talks about the vote dilution theories, the packing and cracking um, claims, and says that although in this particular case they relied on these symmetry type tests, um, they may be able to prove packing and cracking through some sort of alter, uh, alternative map. Uh, they could demonstrate uh, they could demonstrate the unconstitutional partisan gerrymandering through some sort of statewide proof. Uh, so there's an overall legislative scheme to entrench a majority and that this kind of scheme carried down to individual district level decisions, but then demonstrate through alternative maps and such that their particular districts were, um, were packed or cracked. And also she says that the remedy for these individual districts in order to fix those individual districts, especially if there's challenges to enough separate individual districts in the state may effectively require a full statewide redrawing anyway. So she's, she's, uh, she's pointing out how she, in, in her view, um, even under this, this uh, correct view of how of standing, they may still be able to go forward using this largely statewide types of proof. Now, Kagan doesn't suggest um as far as these vote dilution claims go, it doesn't suggest that these symmetry tests, the efficiency gap or partisan symmetry tests could necessarily be used. Um, she gives a hypothetical example um, where if the standard were uh, illicit partisan intent, then, then, then that could be proved through this uh, statewide um, evidence. Um, and, and it may be though, you know, it's not crystal clear from Kagan's uh, decision, but there's at least an argument that these type of symmetry tests are, are incompatible the type of district by district harm that uh, that the court says is required for standing, but King goes on to say that it, that, that uh, plaintiffs may, may uh, be able to go forward not just on the vote dilution claims, but also on the type of First Amendment freedom of association claim. Um, she says the, the court is right not to address that in this case because that theory wasn't really developed below. Um, and, and and argues that the standing here they were deciding standing based on a vote dilution claim, but standing depends on the particular legal claim you're making. And um, 
if uh, if voters are being targeted based on their political association, based on participation in the electoral process or their voting history or things like that, and that's the theory also in the Maryland case, which I'll discuss in a moment, if they're being targeted that way under that theory, the voter is harmed by the targeting of the association, regardless of whether they're in a packed or cracked district. So she's saying if they had gone under this different theory, then maybe they would have had standing even without having to prove that they're in a packed or cracked district. So that's kind of Kagan's view of, of, of and for the four justices at least of, of how this case could still go forward and there could still be these viable claims, even though they threw out um, the, the current uh, case for these, these um, standard standing, um, standing problems. Now, um, Justice Thomas uh, issued a, 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 um, a short uh, concurrence, and he um, he he agrees with the the uh, majority's decision on standing, um, but he argues that the the remedy here was wrong. He says the normal effect of a lack of standing is for the court to just dismiss the case for lack of jurisdiction. And he has there's a uh, here's a quote here. He says after a year and a half of litigation in the district. Hold on one second. After a year and a half of litigation in the district court, including a four-day trial, the plaintiffs had more than ample opportunity to prove their standing under these principles. So he's just rejecting the idea that they should send this case back down for those plaintiffs who alleged um, packing and cracking to have another opportunity to prove that they actually had standing in the case. Um so that's 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 the Gil v. Whitford case. So again, it doesn't decide the ultimate question of whether there is some uh, uh, judicially manageable standard for proving uh, a political gerrymandering claim. It doesn't decide that at all. But it does uh, appear, appears to rule out a certain type of proof. These these symmetry type tests are at least very difficult to to make. Um, and and uh, so, so that'll at least shape the way these cases get brought going forward. Uh, now, that brings me to the other case, the Maryland case, Benesek v. Limon. Now, this case, the court um, uh, gets rid of this case with a, a per curiam dis- uh, opinion. That's a, that's an unsigned opinion. Now, there's no noted dissents in this case. It's not formally designated as unanimous when the court has these per curiam opinions. Per curiam is just an opinion that is by the court rather than signed by a particular justice. Um but uh, it's not formally designated formally designated as unanimous. There's a possibility that some justice kind of doesn't agree with the decision, but just chose not to note their dissent. But it, it appears uh, unanimous in this particular case. Now, this is on procedural grounds, uh, basically. And and to understand this, you need to understand how this the 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 kind of state of this case as it came to the Supreme Court. This case came to the Supreme Court after the denial of a preliminary injunction. So an injunction, uh, injunctive relief is when the court issues an order for someone to do something or to stop doing something. Now, a permanent injunction is the type of uh, order that comes at the end of a litigation after someone wins uh, wins their case. They can get a permanent re- injunction ordering the other party to engage or not engage in some sort of action. But a preliminary injunction is when someone is granted uh, an injunction while the litigation is still ongoing. So the idea is while litigation goes is going on, and sometimes litigation can drag on for an extended period of time, there may be serious harms that are ongoing. And so issuing a preliminary injunction is designed to prevent the serious harm from continuing in the interim while the, the case is, is, is proceeding in the courts. Um, but the, the standard of review, uh, uh, so a denial of a preliminary injunction, is, which happened in this case, um, it can be appealed and it's uh, it's reviewed on an abuse of discretion standard. So what that just means is 
the 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 appeal the appellate court in this case the supreme court that's reviewing this is not redeciding the issue from scratch it's not going back and saying would we have granted a preliminary injunction here it's just saying did the district court abuse its discretion in issuing or in de- denying this injunction so it's supposed to give a lot of deference to the district court um giving them a lot of leeway in 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 making the decision uh so that's the standard this is this is being decided under so and what happened there is in the um in the Maryland litigation, the district court uh, denied a request for a preliminary injunction. So denied a request from the plaintiffs in the case to um, to uh, require a different map to be used for the the upcoming elections. Um, now, the, the the Supreme Court in reviewing this denial says that that a preliminary injunction is quote an extraordinary remedy never awarded as of right. Instead, the court says it's a matter of equitable discretion. Um, it doesn't just automatically follow from deciding that one party is likely to, to succeed in the case. Rather, there's there's certain requirements that have to be met. First, you have to show a likelihood of of suffering irreparable harm a balance of equities in favor of the party seeking the injunction. So just the, the kind of equities, the fairness uh, to the parties, the balance favors whoever's seeking the injunction. And also that the injunction is in the public interest. And the court says that the standard here just isn't met. The court assumes for purposes of the argument that there's a likelihood of success in the merits. So it assumes that the plaintiffs are likely to, to win here just for, just for the sake of argument here, the court says. But then says the balance of equities says one of the factors here is that the party was diligent in in uh, in seeking uh, the relief they're seeking, and and they say here the plaintiffs here just can't show diligence. They waited six years after the map was initially adopted. It was adopted in 2011, and it wasn't until 2017 that uh, the preliminary injunction was sought, and which was three years into the litigate the litigation. Um, before they sought the preliminary injunction. So the court says that just doesn't show diligence that's necessary. If they really, if this was such an emergency that they need preliminary relief, so relief before the case is fully decided, then they should have acted immediately, acted quickly. And the fact that they sat on their rights and waited for years, um, just means that that, that kind of undermines their, their, uh, entitlement to the relief. And then the court goes on to talk about public interest and cites the, uh, a 2006 procurement opinion called Purcell v. Gonzalez. Now, this case is it's sometimes referred to as the Purcell principle, and it's the general idea that courts should be very wary of making changes, electoral changes, too close to an upcoming election because there's a risk of just serious disruption to the election process. Now, there's a lot of different things that could be affected by redrawing electoral maps. It can affect candidate eligibility. It affects the district lines. Um, which uh, polling places, the ballot printing, uh, and 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 these these impacts happen not just on the general election but on primaries. So uh, the closer you are to an election, the more disruptive it's going to be. The more it it uh, it um it potentially uh, seriously impacts people that were relying on the, uh, the the district lines that were previously in place in order to plan, for example, a political campaign or decide to even run for an office or seek out candidates. All those things. Now here, the district court had decided. Uh, in ruling on this injunction, that the injunction would have to be issued by August of 2017 in order to leave enough time for a new map to be created before the 2018 election season. But that date passed before the district court was able to rule on the injunction, even though the court says that the district court was acting diligently, it was not able to meet that date. And that, that, uh, basically the, the court, district court was perfectly reasonable to, uh, to, 
um, find that it would not be in the public interest to make changes at a late date close to the election when the electoral season was already underway. And then the court finally points to legal uncertainty at the preliminary injunction stage. So it notes that the district court explicitly noted that the Supreme Court had the Gilvey Whitford case pending and that the standard for political gerrymanders was up in the air as far as the Supreme Court was discerned, was, was concerned. And so it was reasonable for the district court in light of that real uncertainty over what legal standard to, to apply to decide that a preliminary injunction wasn't um, appropriate at this stage. Um, so uh, the court, uh, um, said that there was no abuse of discretion and uh, upheld the denial of the preliminary injunction. And so that case uh, goes away and is, is back down in the lower court. Now, so so that's those two cases. That Again, that second case really um, says basically nothing about the, the legal standard for a political gerrymander. Just, it just says that the preliminary injunction, um, uh, the district court was was uh, was within its discretion not to, to issue that. Now, before I move on, I have a question, again, from Sam here. It says, was there no circuit court involved in this case? There actually was no circuit court involved in this case, and that's a peculiarity of these election cases. There's a special... Um, there's a type of uh, case. The, there's uh, a few types of cases, and the only the only one that I am aware of specifically are these election cases because they're very frequent and they come up all the time. But challenges to um, uh, election districts. Um, there's a federal statute that sends those challenges rather than going to a district judge uh, for trial, like an, like an, just any normal litigation that you bring in federal court, those cases go to a special three judge district court. So a panel of three district judges is put together to hear these cases. And then once the district court issues its rulings and also certain injunction uh, orders on, uh, granting or denying injunctions, those rulings of the district court can be appealed directly to the Supreme Court. And this is another district. So not only does it bypass the Court of Appeals altogether, it goes straight from the district court to the the Supreme Court without going through the Court of Appeals. But normally, the way the Supreme Court gets almost all the cases on its docket is through the certiorari. That's the process we talk about where the court picks and chooses what issues it wants to hear and the justices vote to decide which cases they want to take and the rest of the cases just just don't don't go. That's the, called the certiorari um, process. These election cases, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the election cases which come from these three judge district courts, they have a right of direct appeal to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court doesn't have a choice whether to take those cases. They automatically get those as long as the court has jurisdiction, meaning the case meets the standards for appeal. So there's a a uh, uh, grant or denial of an injunction or a final decision by the district court, they can be appealed directly to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court has to take those cases. So that's just a special procedure that applies to these election cases. I believe there are a few other just very niche uh, areas that also use the same three-judge process, but other than elections, I don't know what those are because elections are the only one that happens frequently, happens a lot um, uh, at the Supreme Court. So, uh, great question. Thank you for that, that question. Um, so that, that, that wraps up Monday's cases and that doesn't, we didn't even get to today's cases. So again, I mentioned there were four opinions this morning and includes two pretty big cases. Uh, one about, uh, administrative agencies and another about state sales tax. Um, I'm going to try and work through these. I know this is, uh, running kind of long, but hopefully you're bearing with me and I'm going to try and get through, uh, the rest of the cases, uh, for, for, for this week so far. That brings us to the end of part one of the June 21st live stream. Please check out the next episode for part two covering the court's four June 21st decisions. 
Whether you're watching on YouTube or listening to the audio podcast, I would love your feedback. You can leave comments on the show notes page at CountingTo5.com, on the Counting to 5 YouTube channel or Facebook page. You can tweet at Counting to 5 or send an email to Mike at CountingTo5.com. Please subscribe to the Counting to 5 YouTube channel or audio podcast to make sure you don't miss future episodes. Thank you for listening. This has been Counting to 5.